Thank you, Kelly. Good morning, everyone. I can't ever hear that song without thinking about um, in our hometown, in the church there, uh, there was a, an old gentleman by the name of Sully Kingsbury. And <clears throat> Sully was about that tall, and he always sat very near the front, and he had really, really bushy eyebrows, and he had the most booming bass voice I've ever heard. And when we would get to the chorus of that song, uh, he would just really belt it out. And I remember thinking <clears throat> when I was a teenager and, and going to church there with, uh, with Linda, because I wasn't a member at that time, but I remember thinking how great it would be to be able to reach that lowest note and, and thinking, you know, maybe, maybe one of these days I'll be old enough that I can hit that low note. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> But it's a great song. We're glad you're here today to sing it and to uh, think those thoughts along with the, the rest of us. We've been talking about biblical perspectives on the Middle East, trying to, trying to understand a Christian way of thinking about what's happening in the Middle East, why some of the things that are happening there are happening, and uh, if we have a role in, in it, uh, what is our role? What should we be able to be doing? And we're going to pursue that this morning. This will be the, uh, the final lesson in that, that series as we think about blessed are the peacemakers. I read about a young graduate student who was making her way back to her apartment with a plan in mind. It was her birthday, but life wasn't going well for her at all, and she was in a lot of despair. And... She felt all alone in the world and felt that nobody cared about her, about her problems. So her plan was that she was going to go home to her apartment and lock herself in her kitchen and turn on the gas and take her life. But as she approached her front door, she saw something on the floor next to the door, and it was a, it was a cupcake. And it had one candle in it and it had a note with it that said, Happy Birthday. It had been placed there by an elderly neighbor, and it wasn't much, but it at least showed the young woman that somebody cared, and she decided she would not take her life, that life must be worth living after all. I think that story is an example of what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, because you see, making peace in the biblical sense is not so much about resolving conflict. It does involve that, but peace in the biblical sense is a sense of well-being about your life. It's a sense of well-being about your whole life. It's a sense of wholeness to your life, that things are well, that things are okay, that things are what they need to be. When someone says, shalom, peace, what they mean is, I'm praying that you will have wholeness and blessing in your life. I think that concept of peace must be what most folks mean when somebody says, how are you today? And they respond, I'm blessed. What they're saying is, I have peace. And so a peacemaker is somebody who promotes the welfare of other people. It's somebody who deliberately seeks to bring peace into somebody's life. 
It doesn't have to be in a big way. It can be in a small way. It can be writing a note. It can be making a phone call. It can be paying a visit to a hospital. It can be holding open a door. It can be asking someone and meaning it. How are you? It, it can be offering your help. It can be baking a pie for somebody that needs it. It can be any number of things where we are simply trying to make life better for somebody else. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what Jesus is talking about. And what Jesus said is, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Why are people who promote peace in the lives of others sons of God? Well, because God himself is the God of peace, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. And God's son, whom he sent into the world, was called the prince of peace. God is the ultimate peacemaker. There's an important biblical word that we don't talk about as much as we should. It's the word reconciliation. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish between us and God. He came to reconcile the world to himself. He came to reconcile those who are at odds with him, those who are uh, estranged from him because of our sins. He came to reconcile us to himself. He came to make peace between us. And so we who are his followers are to be makers of peace by striving to make life better, more peaceful for everybody that we can. That's one form of peacemaking. But there's another form of peacemaking that perhaps has more relevance to the situation in the Middle East, and that is resolving conflict. Resolving conflicts between individuals and resolving conflict between groups of people, and it's much harder. It's much harder than simply bringing peace into the life of someone else by doing something good for them, because you see, that's a, that's a unilateral decision, isn't it? You can decide that you're going to speak that encouraging word. You can decide that you're going to do that helpful thing to, for somebody. You can decide that you're going to try to lift somebody's load. But when it comes to bringing peace between warring factions, whether it's just two people or it's two nations, when it comes to that, it's a lot harder because then you have to change people's attitudes you have to change their perceptions of one another. You have to change their actions as well. Just ask anyone who's ever tried to do marriage counseling what it's like to try to change the way two people think about each other and to try to get them to reconcile with one another. That's the kind of peacemaking that we think of when we think about the conflict in the Middle East. And so we read Jesus' words, and he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then we think, what, what role can we possibly play in that kind of conflict? Some of the most skilled diplomats in the world have tried for decades to bring peace in the Middle East, and nobody's ever been able to do it yet. How can you and I do anything at all that will affect that situation? It's hard enough to get two individuals to reconcile to one another. How about two groups of people who have a long history of hating one another and believe that that's what they're supposed to do? That that's a righteous thing. That that's the, that's the right thing to do. 
is to hate one another. How do you ever make peace in a situation like that? Well, here's where we need to broaden our faith. We need to broaden our faith, not in ourselves and in our abilities, but in the power of God, the one who has called us to make peace. We do have a role to play. We are God's peacemakers in this world. And there are things that we can do, even in that conflict that we are presently witnessing that has everyone so disturbed and so upset. There are things that we can do to help the situation. And here are just a few of them. Number one, we can lament to God about the loss of life and the violence and the injustices that are being done. We can cry out to God about this. There is a solid biblical tradition in both the Old Testament and the New of lamenting to God, of expressing our sorrow, of expressing our sadness over suffering and tragedy. Even when we can't do anything about it, when we lament, we're not just bemoaning the state of the world, but we're crying out to the one who can do something about it and hoping then and praying that he will. We have a book in the Old Testament, as you probably know, called the Book of Lamentations. And the Book of Lamentations was written sometime shortly after the year 586 B.C., or in that year, perhaps, when the smoking ruins of the city of Jerusalem were, were still uh, vividly in the uh, writer's mind. And perhaps he was actually sitting there looking at them as, as he wrote. But the, the city of Jerusalem had been brought to its knees, it had been humbled, it had been leveled because of its sins. And the Babylonians had come in and they had, they had destroyed the city and they had destroyed the temple. And the writer of Lamentations says this, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt her, uh, dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And on and on and on he goes, lamenting the sad situation of the city and at the same time acknowledging this is because of our sins you go down to verse 18 and he says God is in the right God was in the right to bring this destruction upon Jerusalem because we have been so sinful but he laments over it even though it was inevitable even though the people brought it on themselves he still laments the fact. He still cries out to God about the fact. And you and I have it enshrined in Scripture, in God's Word. That lamenting is one way to respond to such terrible things and to such tragedies. What about in the New Testament? Do you remember Jesus in Luke 19, verse 41? When he was approaching Jerusalem for the last time, knowing full well what was going to happen to him there, knowing that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, knowing that he would be abused, knowing that he would be crucified, knowing that the city itself would reject him. He lamented. In Luke 19, 41, he says, when he, it says, when he saw, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. 
saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Who was listening when Jesus said that? Were the people of Jerusalem hearing him say that? No, they weren't there. Maybe his disciples, at least those who were standing nearest him, heard him say that. But Jesus was pouring his heart out and weeping over the sins of the city. They deserved it. They were going to put to death their own Messiah, the one who had come to reconcile them to God. It was a shameful thing that was going to happen. And yet Jesus wept over them. It wasn't his fault. It was theirs. And yet he lamented over everything that was taking place or would take place in Jerusalem. Anytime that we are aware of a tragedy such as we're seeing in the Middle East, we ought to lament over it. We ought to take it to God. We ought to feel sorry about it. We ought to feel sadness over it. Rather than trying to point fingers and fix blame and all the other things that are going on now, we just need to be so sad as people of God that people in God's world can be at such hostility with one another. And we should lament it. But we might ask, well, what good does it do? What does it accomplish to lament? How are we making peace by lamenting over the things that are happening in the Middle East? There are several things, really. One is that lamenting is a way of turning to God in faith, even when we feel helpless. It's a way of strengthening our own faith, and it's a way of acknowledging the greatness of God as we acknowledge to him, Lord, I can't do anything about this situation, but I know you can. And I don't know what your will in it is. I don't know how this is all going to work out, but you do. And, and I trust you, and I put that in your hands. We just lament the fact that things are as they are. But it's also a way of acknowledging the, the sinful human condition, and you and I are part of that. We're part of that too, aren't we? We're sinners also. And as we look at things like what's going on in the Middle East, we ought to be saying, instead of saying, well, I'm glad I don't live over there, we ought to be thinking, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, we could be right in the middle of something like that. Thank God we're not. And we need to thank God that we're not. But we need to be sad over the sinful human condition and longing and praying for the day. Christ will come and will put everything right. Lamenting also sensitizes us to the human tragedy and suffering, and it builds sympathy for those who are suffering. And I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but we live in a world that desensitizes us to suffering. It desensitizes us to the suffering of other people. We are bombarded with images day by day so that we just come to expect them. We just, we just acknowledge it. Well, there it is again. And, and we just kind of become a little bit hardened. We build a little bit of a shell around ourselves. Or, or we, we even sometimes are entertained by programs where people get hurt and where people are wounded and, and where people are killed. And, and we become desensitized. Lamenting sensitizes us to the reality of human suffering. It's easy to be indifferent. We need to be sensitized 
to what's going on to people uh, to be in this world. What's going on in the Middle East right now is a tragedy, and lamenting it is a truly biblical response to it. And we ought to be doing it. We ought to be doing it collectively in our prayers and in our worship. We ought to be doing it personally and individually and saying to God how sorry we are for the state of the world and asking for his help. The second thing we can do is that, and we must do, we can emphatically repudiate hatred. We can emphatically repudiate hatred for either side of the conflict. You know, the present conflict in the Middle East is a double-edged sword. There's not only the hatred and the loss of life uh, in Israel and in Gaza, but it has, it has flared up into hatred around the world. I have never seen anything like it in my life, and I doubt that you have either. That what's going on in one very limited area of the world has suddenly exploded in, in, into a torrent of hatred around the world. And so you have people who have hatred for others because their loved ones have been wounded, their countrymen or their relatives or their friends are, are suffering, or maybe just because of an ideology that they hold. They may not have a stake in it at all. It may just be that they've decided, well, I'm going to be on this side, so I'm going to hate the other side. And we've got a lot of that going on all over the world. We have hatred on a massive scale. People hate one another because of religion, because of ethnicity, because of history, and a myriad of other causes. And it's an absolutely awful situation. A world so full of hatred. Did you know Jesus lived in a world just like that? He lived in a world that was aflame with hatred. And when it wasn't a flame, it was smoldering. The Jews lived under Roman occupation and they hated them. They hated the Romans. When Jesus said, if someone compels you to go with him one mile, go with him two, you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about the typical Jewish peasant who's walking along there, minding his own business, and along comes a Roman soldier and says, you're going to carry my pack for the next mile. And he says, don't just carry one, carry it two. They hated those people. They hated them. The Jews and the Samaritans had been at each other's throats. Why? Because of conflicts that had occurred more than 500 years earlier. And the Jews looked down on the Samaritans and called them dogs. And the Samaritans looked back, no telling what they called the Jews. We don't have their records. But they hated one another. People in the ancient world generally hated the Jews because they were different. They practiced circumcision, which Hellenistic people thought was an abomination to go cutting on the human body. Outrageous, they thought. They hated them because their diet was different. There were things they wouldn't eat, things that they insisted uh, that were, uh, were unclean that everybody else thought was all right. And, and they insisted on taking a day off every week. Nobody else in the ancient world did that. They thought, you know, they're just trying to get a day off. They didn't understand the custom of the Sabbath, and so they hated them. And so you got the Jews hating the Romans and the Samaritans hating the Jews and everybody else hating them and everybody hating everybody else. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of all that, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for them 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In the middle of that kind of hatred, in the middle of the kind of world you and I are in right now, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for them. Later, Paul wrote that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he said, God shows no partiality, and we shouldn't either. And yet we easily, easily fall into the trap of despising groups of people or despising individuals and not caring about them in the ways that we, that we should. I remember a number of years ago, I was teaching a Bible class, and there was a gentleman in there who was visiting with us. He was a Christian, a long-time Christian. I don't remember what the subject matter was, but something came up about, about a, some group of people, don't remember who that was, but some group of people that rejected Christ and were opposed to the gospel. And, and we were talking about the fact that we need to love them anyway. And he said, but, but aren't we supposed to hate those people? Doesn't God hate them? He asked. You know, sometimes I wonder if we believe our own gospel. What does the gospel say? John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world. And listen, folks, that's not the cleaned up, spick and span, spotless world. That's the world just like it is right now. God loves this world. And he calls on us to do the same thing. Do we believe our own gospel? Did you know it's entirely possible? It's entirely possible to openly acknowledge the sins of other people and their failings without hating them. We can do that. God does it. And he tells us to do it. And he teaches us how to do it. We need to be certain that we are repudiating hatred in every form. God does it and we can too. And if you can't, you need to examine your own relationship with God. Because you've missed something. You've missed something. If you think God expects you to hate somebody. Or even allows you to. You need to be doing some self-examination so we can repudiate hatred. The third thing we can do, of course, is that we can pray. When you feel helpless and hopeless about the world, read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4. When Paul says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for all people, and especially, he says, for their rulers. Why? What good does it do for, for us to pray about the leaders of other nations or the leaders of our own nation, for that matter? What good does it do? Paul says that it does a lot of good. He says we ought to be praying so that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives that are godly and dignified in every way. And then he goes ahead and he says this is good and acceptable in sight of God our Savior who what? Desires all people to be saved. And come to the knowledge of the truth. So you and I are supposed to be praying about the state of the world. And about the leaders of the world. And about the things going on in the world. Not only so that we can lead quiet and dignified lives. But that so the gospel will be unhindered. And more people will come to know about Christ and be saved. That's what it's all about. You know I have to wonder sometimes. If the sorry state of the world isn't to some extent due to the fact that Christians haven't prayed the way we should. Do we pray that prayer? Do we pray it in faith? Do we pray believing that God hears and answers those prayers? You know, if we don't pray in that way, then what we're saying is we really don't believe it. We really don't think it does any good. And we're kind of asking Paul, why? 
Why, Paul, should we pray what you're saying that we should pray if it really won't do any good? We really have to wonder, is any of this due to the fact that we simply don't pray in the way that we should? Praying for the people of all nations, praying for the leaders of all nations is an evangelistic prayer. We need to widen our praying. We all need to do this consciously all the time. What's our tendency? It's to pray for ourselves. It's to pray for our families. It's to pray for the people right around us. It's to pray for our own congregation and so forth. We need to widen our praying and pray for the world, for the whole world all the time and ask God's blessings on it. It's his world. It's a world that's one day going to come to an end. And people in the world need to know that they have a savior. And we have a part in making them know that. And prayer is a part of that. If we believe in the God who rules the affairs of people, he rules the affairs of this world, then we need to pray. Not only about the Middle East, but about the world in general. And then the fourth thing we can do, remember that for all human conflict, there's only one roadmap to peace. That's what George W. Bush called his program to bring peace in the Middle East when he was president. It didn't work. Wish it had, but it didn't. We need to understand there's only one roadmap to peace. Peace is not found in one side finally winning a war over the other. Peace is not found in one side becoming more powerful than the other and subduing the other and beating the other down. Peace is not found uh, when uh, somebody wins an argument. Peace is found only as far as we turn ourselves in the direction of the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, the prince of peace. That's when real peace is found. We need to point everyone we can to him because the more people who follow Christ, the more peace there will be. The more people who follow Christ. And I know skeptics say, oh yeah, but you've had war among Christians down through history too. And sadly, that's true. There have been wars among people who call themselves Christians, but I would argue that they were not following Jesus. What I'm saying we need to do is do what Jesus said, make disciples, followers of Jesus of all the nations. And the more we do that, the more peace there will be. So the ultimate form of peacemaking is evangelism. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. And the ultimate form of peacemaking is to lead other people to Christ, not only saving them, but making the world a better place. And we as believers have our responsibility to be sure, first of all, that we are at peace with God, that we are at peace with God, so that we can demonstrate that peace that passes all understanding that Paul wrote about. And we can be peacemakers to others. We can point them to the way of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called sons of God. It's true in the Middle East. It's true in your home. It's true in your school. It's true in the place where you work. It's true anywhere that you happen to be. You need to be a peacemaker, and in doing so, you will be a son of God. You will be a son of God. But first, first, you have to find that peace between yourself and God, that reconciliation that comes only through Jesus. 
You know one of the reasons that people fight and quarrel and argue so much in the world? You know what the book of James says? It says because we're at war within ourselves. We're at war within ourselves. You know why we're at war within ourselves a lot of times? Because we're not at peace with God and we know it. We're trying to live life our own way. You may be trying to do that right now. You may be saying, I'm just living my life my own way. I'm not going to worry about what other people think, what other people say. I'm going to live life my own way. How's that working for you? Do you have peace? Do you have peace with God that passes all understanding? Do you have the peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ? Do you have the peace that comes from knowing that there was a day in your life when you said, I believe that Jesus is God's son. And you turned away from life, living life the way you wanted to. And resolved to live it the way God wants you to. And you were baptized into Jesus. United with the Prince of Peace. Now you can live at peace. If you haven't done that, the place to start making peace is within yourself, between you and God. And the time to do that is right now. Let's stand together and sing.